The Five Books of Moses, a translation with commentary by Robert Alter. And it happened at this time that Judah went down from his brothers and pitched his tent by an Adulamite named Hirah. And Judah saw there the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua, and he took her and came to bed with her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she bore still another son and called his name Shalah. And he was at Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for <clears throat> Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, come to bed with your brother's wife and do your duty as brother-in-law for her and raise up seed for your brother. And Onan knew that the seed would not be his. And so when he would come to bed with his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so to give no seed to his brother. And what he did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he put him to death as well. And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Stay a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, is grown up. For he thought, lest he too die like his brothers. And Tamar went and stayed at her father's house. And a long time passed, and the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And after the mourning period, Judah went up to his sheep shearers. He was with Hira and Adulamite, his friend Timnah. And Tamar was told, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And Tamar was told, oh wait, just repeating. <laughs> and she took off her widow's garb and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat by the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as wife. And Judah saw her and he took her for a prostitute for she had covered her face. And he turned aside to her by the road and said, here, pray, let me come to bed with you. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me for coming to bed with me? And he said, I personally will send a kid from the flock. And she said, only if you give a pledge till you, till you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and cord and the staff in your hand. And he gave them to her, and he came to bed with her, and she conceived by him. And she rose and went her way, and took off the veil she was wearing, and put on her widow's garb. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, and he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the colt harlot, the one at Enam by the road? And they said, there has been no colt harlot here. And he returned to Judah and said, I could not find her. And the men of the place said as well, there has been no colt harlot here. And Judah said, let her take them, lest we be a laughing stock. Look, I sent this kid and you could not find her. And it happened about three months later that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played a prostitute. And what's more, she conceived. And Judah said, take her out to be burned. Out she was taken, when she, sent, when she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I have conceived. And she said, Recognize, pray, whose are this seal and cord and this staff? And Judah recognized them, and he said, 
She is more in the right than I. For have I not failed to give her to Shalah, my son? Thanks, Thanks Megan. It's a long read. I'm Heather, one of the pastors here, in case we haven't met today. We're continuing on in our series about identity. I am not, and we have a guest speaker with us, Michelle Jones. And Michelle is a teaching pastor at a church in Portland, Oregon, Imago Day. And she also is pastor over um, spiritual direction and prayer there. You might also have heard her voice on the Bible Project. She does a lot of projects with them, um, hosts conversations. Michelle is infinitely creative. I don't think I've met anyone as or maybe more creative than her. She generates ideas and has an imagination for new things and for beauty. And she's also deeply compassionate. There's a word in Irish, and it's called anamkara. It's like the kind of deep soul friend that you have, and Michelle is one of those. And a deep soul friend is someone, after you've encountered them or have a conversation from them, you kind of know God a little better, you know yourself a little better, and you know the world a little better. And so I'm grateful to have her come up today because I'm sure that all of us, after hearing her today, will know ourselves a little better, we'll know God a little better, and we'll know the world a little better. So would you welcome Michelle? Heather is my Utah Anamkara. I call her that all the time. So hi, and I bring you greetings from Portland, Oregon. Uh, this is going to be an interesting day. I'm, I'm, you know, I want us to kind of all hold it with a loose hand. I, you, have you ever had one of those days where you can just kind of like feel the Holy Spirit's just kind of settling in a place and you get up and you just go, I think I'm supposed to be here today. So even if you didn't come in here like that, that is true. You're all here for a reason. You're all here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. Um, that was a long passage. And I couldn't see any way around doing pieces of it because we kind of need to see the whole story in order to really understand it as we look at this series that we're in called I Am Not, and as we think about what it means to have conversations around our identity and who it is we are to God. I want to begin, who's seen Barbie? <laughs> Yay! All right, so a lot of you are going to know about, and I'm sorry to spoil it for some of you, a lot of you are familiar with um, the moment in that film where America Ferreira talks to her daughter and she gives this, this spectacular speech, some of which I want to repeat to you here today. And she talks to her about the complicated and difficult experience of being a woman in a modern world. And it's almost all entirely about what I want to talk to you about today, which is image. I am not my image is what we're going to talk about today. So in this particular speech, she says to her daughter, and I'm condensing it a little bit, she says, you have to be thin, but not too thin. She starts off by saying it's almost impossible to be a woman 
in this world. She says you have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say that you want to be thin. You have to say that you want to be healthy, but you also have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but you can't talk about your kids all the damn time. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. Right? Greta, who, Greta Gerwig, I believe her name is, who directed this film, she said when it took 30 takes to get this speech right. She also gave this speech to America Ferreira before she even saw the, the script, and she said, I'm in. And she said there were women and men crying during the taping of this. And an assistant director tapped uh, Margot Robbie and said to her, you, you, you don't have to be so intense. You don't have to cry at this part. And she's like, I can't help it. <laughs> but there's something about what it means that our image is so important to us in this world. As we talk about these, these ideas of what it means to, to have an identity in Christ, image comes up so quickly and so importantly. And what do I mean by image? Well, if identity is, as Johnny says, it's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, um, identity is internal. Image is external. Imagine identity is the book and image is the book jacket. And you hear people say oftentimes that you can't judge a book by its cover, but once upon a time, we were able to judge a book by its cover. In the Garden of Eden, we were made and created in the image of God. We were created in such a way that we were the cover that could tell the story about the book that was the love of God. We were made in his image. We were the external expression. We were his idol, his small image, his his, we pointed at him and we told you what to expect from him, as all creation did. We were unhidden and unashamed and withholding nothing, and we had emotions and we were generous and we were hospitable with one another and inviting one another into belonging because that is what God did and that is how the Father and the Son and the Spirit lived their lives in relationship. And somewhere along the way, we lost the plot. We became suspicious of God. And when we started to look at him through the eyes and through the lens of that suspicion and through the lens of the shame of our own sin, then we changed how God looked because God is always in an invitational posture. God is always doing this. And for some reason, when we sinned and when we saw him with our shame, we started to think that he was looking at us like this and he was accusing us because what we started to do was accuse one another. We started to say, well, okay, he said, well, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? And we were forever changed because instead of 
seeing and hearing God do this. Who told you you were naked? Come here. Talk to me about what you just experienced that put you here. What we saw is you were bad. You did wrong. You did something that was not okay. And then we said, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave me. And then she said, the serpent. And we all started this. And then the church looked like that, doesn't it? Don't we notice that the church looks like that a lot? The church looks like you should this, you are this, you are that. And so we've forgotten that God is this. And the entire Bible is a story of God saying, I need you to recognize this and return. It's full of stories of recognize that the finger of God is inviting us into belonging, that it's inviting us into a space with him. And he continues to call us to recognize that and return. And you think about the stories of David and the story of Ruth and the stories of Abraham and the stories of Jacob and the stories of Paul. It's always God doing this and saying, come here. And so I want to look today at this story of Judah and Tamar. And I have to say that part of it was my own ego when I was talking to Heather going, I'm going to talk about Judah and Tamar because I've never talked about Judah and Tamar before. What was I thinking? This was not an easy thing. So I just want you all to know I have been through the ringer because of this. But the story of Judah and Tamar kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because it's sticking right there in the middle of the story of Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery and then there's also Joseph in Potiphar's house and his dealings with Potiphar's wife. And right in the middle is this story of Judah and Tamar. And it sticks out like a sore thumb, but we don't treat it like that. How many of you have ever had a sore thumb? You kind of can't do anything else until you pay attention to it. And what we typically do is we don't treat that story like it's a sore thumb. We just skip right over it and pretend that it's not there. And we just go through the story of Joseph, right? And we just say, okay, well, he got sold into slavery and then cut to Potiphar's house. And this story just sits there. And if it doesn't just sit there, typically people will go through this story and say, oh my gosh, this terrible, terrible thing that happened. This is a hot mess going on with Judah and Tamar. What is this about? And so then they go through this whole thing of this is just terrible and she's horrible. And, and this is kind of typically what happens with a lot of the women who are in scripture. And Tamar is one of four women who are mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. And all of them get a bad rap because people want to focus on what it is they've done or who it is they are. And it's like Rahab, she was a prostitute. And then there was Ruth, and she was a Moabite, and she was a widow. And then you've got Tamar, who did this kind of messy thing right here. And then we don't actually see what we need to see because we're so focused on the image of these women. And we're not focused on the identity of these women. And we're not focused on seeing them through the lens of a God who does this. And so that's what I want to do today, is to talk about this story of Judah and Tamar. Because the, between the two of them, I think this story has more to say about image than a lot of stories. And I want to look at this idea of image from three different angles. I want to look at image in terms of the prison that we can make for ourselves when we are dependent on and looking at image. I want to look at the burden that we can put on other people when we are 
thinking about image over our identity. And then I want to talk about the freedom that comes from living into and out of God's design for us as his image bearers. And we're going to start off with Judah because he is the problem in this story. It's not Tamar. It is Judah who is the problem in this story. Judah is a guy who is living in a prison of his own making. We find him having left his brothers and he goes down to this area near Canaan and he is, it says going down and whenever you see that phrase going down, it usually means not just physically that they went down geographically, but it also means that they've gone down in terms of who they are as human beings, that they were here in their relationship with God and then they, they ended up here. And so you see Judah who has, if you, if you think about the ramp in, Judah and his brothers have just sold Joseph into slavery. Now, it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. In fact, Reuben said, okay, basically, I'm just going to go to the restroom and I'll be right back. And when I get back, I need you guys to like make sure you don't do anything to Joseph. While he's gone, Judah says, so, why should we not profit from this situation? Let's sell him. And then we can make a little money off of this. So this is Judah's idea. So then they do it. They sell him into slavery. And then Reuben comes back. They freak out. And Judah takes a, he takes Joseph's jacket, his coat of many colors, and smears it with the blood of a kid. And then he takes it to Jacob. And he says, they say to their father, do you recognize this jacket? And stick a pin in that word recognize because that's important. And Jacob is inconsolable. He sees it, he freaks out, he, he's upset, and he cannot be consoled. So he's, he's, my son has died, this is his jacket, and he's just completely upset. So now it says that Jake, Judah, after that, left his brothers and he goes down. He gets a Canaanite wife, mistake number two. He gets a wife who is not from his family. And so he gets this woman and then he gets a daughter-in-law, for his son. She bears him three sons. And then what he does is he, he gets a wife for his first son, Ur. So it's important to see that he does this because he's doing all of the things that he needs to do, but he's not really invested in the things that he's doing. And so why do I say that? So when we look at this ramp in and we see what Judah has done to Joseph, then he goes and he, he marries the wrong kind of woman, so he clearly has no, no issues with going against what, what his fathers have, have done, his father's fathers have done. He's kind of going off the track. He's already off the track. But then he gets to this place where he has sold his brother and then he has left home. So what I want you to see here is that Je Judah is already living in this space where he has denied his identity as a son of Yahweh. He has already denied who he is. The only thing we're left with when we decide to become something or someone other than who God has called us to be is the image that we want to manufacture. And so I want to show you this diagram. It's not the only diagram in the world, but it's a way that it makes sense to me, and hopefully it will make sense to you. So when we look at this diagram, down there at the bottom it says CMCM. All that means is the collection of moments concerning me, okay? That's everything that's ever happened to you, every event, every person, every encounter, all the things that make up what you would consider your life. 
And the way that we live our lives, oftentimes that comes with a lot of trauma or that comes with relationships, that comes with whatever it is that we would say, this is my life. If I were to sit you down and say, write about yourself, then that's what that would be. But we are story beings because we have a God who is a storyteller. And so what we try to do is we try to make sense of that collection of moments, don't we? We try to figure out, like in my case, why did my dad leave when I was 10? Or why did I get treated like this in school? Or why was I going through this? Or why did I have this many brothers and sisters? And why did we grow up here? And, and what is this about? And why do I look like this? And all of those things that we ask ourselves about ourselves. And so we come up with a story. We come up with a way to be able to arm ourselves in the world, and that is the narrative. We narrate, as Heather said last week, we narrate, our, we narrate our lives to the world. And so as we narrate ourselves to the world, we are saying to the world, this is why my life makes sense, because of this. And so we, what we do is the, the degree to which our collection of moments looks like the story we tell that's the level of authenticity we have. And so you'll hear people all the time say, oh my gosh, he's so authentic. He's so authentic. And you think about that, right? And you think, yeah, because the stuff that's happened in his or her life looks like the story that he or she is telling, right? But the interesting thing is, is that we were never called to be authentic in this world because authenticity is about the stories that we tell about ourselves. That's not who we were called to be. We're actually called to be something other than that. But I want to stop here because I want to look at how Judah was. So Judah is actually trying to sell this narrative. And he's trying to actually show people who he is without actually considering who he actually is. So how do we know that Judah is stuck in this prison that he's made for himself? And it is because the story that he's trying to tell, he's all about duty and he's all about this is what you have to do and he's all about appearances. He says to his, he, he gets a wife for his son and when that son dies, he says to his other son, do your duty and go into, you know, marry Tamar. And so, he, so he's, he's talking about duty. He's got a really good game that he plays and he says this, however, what he does is both of his sons die because they were wicked in the sight of the Lord. So his first son does, and God just takes him out. Second son, God just takes him out. Judah doesn't even deal with that. He's just saying, do your duty, do your duty. And then he says, I don't think I'm going to give her the next one. So now he still has to make the image look good. So he says, so I'm going to need you to go to your dad's house and be a widow at your dad's house, and I'll give you this third son when he grows up. And obviously that doesn't happen. So we know that he's stuck because what happens when we're dependent on our image and not so much on our identity is that what we tend to do is we sacrifice the truth for those things that can be proven. We sacrifice the truth for what can be proven. And so what does it look like? It looks like Judah is a good father-in-law. It looks like the same as it looks like his son is a good husband, but his son is not that in reality. And so you see these people who are really like putting this image out there that they're doing what they're supposed to do, but they're not actually doing what they're supposed to do. And don't be too hard on Judah, because when you think about the kind of man he is, 
Think about the kind of family he came from. In that collection of moments concerning Judah, you find a father who didn't like his mother and who treated his second wife, Rachel, with much more care and much more love. So you had a son who grew up not favored. He loved Joseph. He loved Benjamin because they came from Rachel. He ignored Judah. He ignored Levi. He ignored Reuben and all the other brothers. And so he grows up knowing that his father does not love him. He also grows up with a father whose knee-jerk reaction was to lie about some things. Let's talk about how Jacob ended up where he is in the first place because he lied about who he was. And then let's talk about Jacob's father, Isaac. Same thing. Let's talk about Isaac's father, Abraham. He comes from a long line of lion folk who just care about what images look like. And so this is how this guy ends up in this spot, dependent on image as his knee-jerk reaction to everything. And so the second way that we know that we are dependent on our images is that we tend to hide in that image. And so he's hiding in this image and he's not being honest about who his sons are and he's not being honest about who he really is. He's saying, I'm a good father-in-law, so I've sent my daughter-in-law over here until my other son grows up. But it actually says he, he has no plans to actually give this third son to her. The next thing is, is that we defend the image at whatever the cost is to other people. So he's got his daughter-in-law over where she is, and he doesn't care that she's living in her father's house in shame. He doesn't care that it looks like she is worthless. He doesn't care that she has been married to two men and has had no children, and so what does she look like? He doesn't care that she's alone, because to care that she's alone and to care about those things means that he's going to have to actually make some adjustments in his own image excuse me, and how often have we done that? How often have we sacrificed other people so that we can preserve our own image? I know I've done that. I know I've been this person who has said, this is how it needs to look, and it doesn't matter what it's going to cost somebody else for it to look like that. Because there's something in me that is ashamed and afraid of this God who is saying you're less than and you should be better and you could be better. When I think about the narrative that I would tell the world because I had a dad who left, something in me said I should have been more something. I should have been smarter. I should have been funnier. I should have been better. I should have gotten better grades. And so I grow up and part of the narrative I would tell the world is I am better at everything. And I don't care what you have to say about me. I'm going to be and appear better at everything than everybody else. And when somebody shows up who looks like they might be better than me, I'm going to put them down. And so I was that person who had, who had no problem with making sure that I looked the best and I didn't care what it cost you. I didn't care what I needed to say about you. I was that person, which made, I came through television, which made television perfect for me because that's all you do all day long, is tell people what your image is and you just tell a story all day long. And then you walk into a room and you do what's called work the room. You just make sure everybody knows that you are the one who needs to be in the room and you're the best. I could work a room all day. And I would tell people when I'd go take meetings, I'd say, oh yeah, I'm taking a good meeting because I wouldn't even be in the meeting if they didn't already know I was amazing. So I walk in the room and I take these meetings and I would just, ah, I hate who I used to be. 
And I'm sometimes still reaching for that image, reaching for that piece of me that says, how do I look to other people? How do I appear? What's the book jacket say? What, what am I selling to you? Because that's what the narrative is. It's the sell. It's how I sell myself to you. The question is, are people buying what I'm selling? That's what makes a difference. When I'm thinking about myself, it's like that's what, that's what narrative does versus story, is that narrative says, how am I going to sell myself to you? And then what does that do? That seeps even into our church, doesn't it? Don't we find that the gospel has become a product to be sold and not a story to be told? That we're in there and people are trying to convince us? It's like, if you come to Jesus, then you get this. And then what happens when we don't get this? When the actual reality of the cross hits us and we go, wait a second, this hurts. Ouch. There's suffering involved. That's not what you sold me. That's not what you told me. You said everything was going to be fine. Life was going to be good. And that's because the gospel began to be sold as a narrative and not simply told as a story so that we could trust God with it. And the last thing we do when we start to live like that is that the image becomes our idol. We're created to be idols of God, right? And if you haven't had a chance to listen to Johnny's sermon or to Heather's sermon, you should. They're great. But when you think about this idea of us being an idol of God, when we ditch that idea and we decide that we center ourselves and our image is the thing that becomes the story, then everything else has to worship the idol that is my story. And when we do that, then we force a burden on all of the people who are around us, who see us, who see this image, and we require them to kind of bow down to that image. And so this is what happens with Tamar. He puts this burden on her to go and live with her father, to go and be disgraced, and he does all of this stuff, and so she has to take matters into her own hand. It's really interesting. James Baldwin, who is a writer and also a civil rights activist, one of the things that he said was, if you are not who you, if you are not, what, if, if I am not what you say I am, then you are not who you think you are. Every time I've seen that quote, what it makes me think about is this idea that I have to protect my narrative because if I don't, if the truth comes out that I'm not who I've been running around saying that I am, if you're not who I say you are, then I'm not who I think I am. So look at Tamar. You've got Judah who's put her out of the way. He's managing, doing PR on himself, saying, I'm this guy. I'm a good father-in-law. I'm a great dad. I'm a very concerned citizen. I'm a godly guy. In fact, I'm probably better than all of you because you're all Canaanites. So I'm better than all of you. We know that's not true. He knows that's not true, but he's got a daughter-in-law who is quiet and she's not saying otherwise. So he gets to live in that, right? But then she makes a decision to take some agency and she makes some decision to say, okay, who actually am I? Because what happens when we put people in the position of having to worship our image, then what we do is we say nothing matters except my image, and you have to worship that, and you have to be that, and then they disappear. People stop being who they are to us. All they are is subjects. All they are are people who serve us, 
who do what we need them to do so that we can continue to present this picture that if we're honest, at the core, we don't actually believe. Because if we believed it, then we wouldn't be so passionate about holding on to it and making sure that other people believe it, right? So you have, you have Tamar who decides to take some agency and she says, okay, fine. I see that he's not going to give me that son. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go. I know he's on his way up here. I'm going to get in his way. I'm going to get in his path. And he sees her and he thinks she's a prostitute. He does not recognize her. When we refuse to acknowledge or recognize others. And that word recognize means to see them, to acknowledge them, to respect them. Then what we do is we heap on their shoulders the burden of our duty to them while we claim their dignity as our own. And so you have people in your life, or these Judah had people in his life who had to carry the burden of his duty to them because he was not carrying that burden himself. And then he claimed their dignity as his own because they had no dignity. And so he was taking all of that on to himself. And so when you think about that diagram again, if we look at the diagram, what we do in our relationship with God is that our lives are to be lived as a response to him. And so what we do when we live according to our image is that we say God doesn't matter. I'm the idol. I'm the, I'm the thing that's supposed to be worshipped. My image is the thing that's supposed to be worshipped. But God is saying the way you release that is you live your life according to who I say you are. Now, you've got Tamar, who is a Canaanite, who is living according to the law of Yahweh. She is not basically, she's not just going to Judah and going off. She's living the life that she is supposed to live as a Jew. She's living as a person who is depending on Yahweh. So what we do when we want to release this narrative is that we begin to respond. We begin to respond to this. And God says, come here. Let me tell you who you are moment by moment. Let me show you your past moments and let me redeem them by showing you my story in those moments. When Paul says, I want to know Jesus by the, the fellowship of his suffering to be conformable unto his death, he's saying, I want you to show me your moments and my moments. I want you to show me who you are. So if I've suffered and I've had trauma, I want you to show me that you've had trauma, Jesus. And Jesus is like, I can do that. And so what I'm going to do is redeem your moments by showing you that there's fellowship between us. I don't just know how you feel. I feel how you feel. I didn't just look at you go through that. I went through all of the things that you're going through and look at where I am because here's the end of the story. The end of the story isn't the place that you landed. It's the place you get up from because at the end of the day, I'm the end of the story. I am author and I am finisher. You were born in my imagination and that's the goal. That's what we're moving toward. And so you have to shed that image by responding to God's God's faithful revelation to you, when he reveals himself to you and you respond according to who he says you are, then it's like having two, two oars in a boat, right? You're looking at your life in terms of your response to God and it requires both because what happens when you let go of one oar? If you're simply seeing God's truthful revelation but you do nothing about it, what happens when you're rowing with one oar? 
Just go around in circles. What happens if you're doing, 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 and you're not listening to God's voice say, come here? You're just going around in circles. The way we let go of the, the, I, the image that we have of ourselves, the way we feel we need to sell ourselves to other people, the way we let go is by saying, okay, God, who do you say I am? And I will respond according to that. And that is how we move forward. And as we move forward, he reshapes that narrative. And so, yes, my father left. And yes, my father walked away. But I am a person who has a God who says, I would never leave you an orphan. So even though I had a dad who walked away, I am not an orphan. That's the story. That's the truth. The narrative gets reshaped. And the more I look at my life and respond according to that, and not respond according to the collection of moments concerning me or the narrative or the way that I want to sell myself to the world, the more I respond to who God says I am, the more my narrative gets reshaped into the story and the more that collection of moments reveals to me the truth that Jesus has been with me from day one and before that. And so the degree to which my story looks like the truth which is Jesus's moments, that's my level of freedom. And I become disarmed and loved at the same time. And so the goal is not to be authentic. The goal is to be free. And so you have all of these moments concerning you. And a lot of people want to say, well, let's forget that, leave that behind. And God is saying, no, bring it with you. Because I want you to know that those things that have happened to you in your life, those things that you're hiding in your image to, to avoid and to pretend didn't happen, they're okay. They can't defeat you because you, my friend, have the power that raised Jesus from the dead in you. And I put that power in you. And so I need you to bring all of that stuff with you, not just the good stuff. I don't want you to bring just the good things in your story. I want you to bring it all because it's all a part of my story and who I am. Because ultimately, yours is a story to be told. And so you've got Tamar who makes this decision to say, look, yes, I'm going to go and be, you know, appear to be, put out the image of a prostitute, but I know who I am. But I'm doing this because I'm seeking justice. I'm not doing anything other than seeking the justice that Yahweh said was mine, the justice that Yahweh named himself after. I'm responding to what that is and not anything else. And so you've got Judah who does this thing with her. And then he says, when they say, hey, she's been a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Judah's so mad because he's trying to like preserve this image. There's two words, these two Hebrew words. It says in the, in the narrative here that he says, take her out and burn her. It's actually just two words take, burn. He's that mad because burning is one of the most violent things you can do. And he's that determined to protect his own image that he just says, take, burn. Part of it is because he's just going, she's horrible. She's terrible. His finger is now doing this to Tamar. And then Tamar says, oh, take, burn. On the way to being taken and burned, she says, by the by, uh, this stuff right here belongs to the guy that I'm pregnant by. And it says he gets this stuff and he recognizes that stuff. He recognizes it. And it's interesting when you think about it because in that moment, 
she shows him who he is. And it's important for us to shed this image that we have in order to expose the truth. Because while our stories are our own, we do not own our stories. Our stories are there so that others can see the power of a risen Christ in our lives. And it is huge because it shows us who we are and it gives us a roadmap to be able to say, I can bring my junk, I can bring my stuff because look at Tamar, look at Michelle, look at Heather, look at Johnny, look how they're living. They got all the stuff, all the mess. They're not hiding behind just what can be proven and what looks pretty and what looks good and how we look talented and all of those things. But we're bringing the, the entire story with us. And so when we do that and we live these free lives where we go, yeah, I got that junk. Yeah, I'm an ex-addict. Yes, this is the parent I grew up with. Yeah, that's my crazy drunk uncle. Yes, this is what I messed up in in school. Yes, this is where I failed. All of those things along with everything else, all of it matters. All of it is good because God looked at each and every one of us and said, yeah, good. And so when, when Tamar does this, then it says that Judah recognized that stuff. He recognized her and he recognized himself. And he says, she is more in the right than I am. And it's not that she's a gooder person than I am. That word righteous it means that she understands justice and that she also understands right relationships and she also knows what it means to do right by people. When you see in the Beatitudes where it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's those who hunger and thirst for a world where people do right by one another according to the relationships that they have with one another. That's what that means. And you see almost every beatitude in Tamar's behavior because Tamar, as much as people want to talk about what she did, Tamar's the hero of our story because if she didn't do what she did, we don't get Jesus because he was so willing to protect his image that he was willing to end the line of Abraham. But if Tamar had not done what she did, we don't get Jesus Jesus comes that way. And when she did what she did, immediately Judah repents. The sacrifices of God are a contrite spirit or a contrite heart and a broken spirit. He's broken in that moment and he owns it. And when he does that, there's a healing that takes place. And you look at the guy Judah was before Tamar and the guy he was afterwards. He's a guy who's willing to sell his brother into slavery before he encounters Tamar. And after his situation with Tamar, when they're going to keep Benjamin, when Joseph finally decides, I'm going to keep Benjamin, Judah is willing to give his life. And he says, keep me, send him home. This would kill our father. If, he, if they show up without this kid, it's going to kill our dad. The same one who was willing to show his dad and let his dad believe that his son was killed is now the one who said, I'm willing to take his place. And we see, we see that image of Christ in Judah thanks to that image of Christ we see in Tamar first. 
And so when we think about this, I, I'm reminded of a, of a thing that was said by one of my favorite, favorite poets. His name is Padre Gotuma. And one of the things that he says when he's talking about myth, he says, he talks about myth and he says, myth is not so much a thing that is not true, but a thing that is so true, has so much truth in it that it requires a fantastical container. Each of us is a fantastical container of truth. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And if we don't shed these images that we want to just present the world with, if we don't get rid of this need that we have to sell ourselves to the world, then who's going to see this amazing truth that lives in us? I want to end with um, a, a poem that meant a lot to me because it, it, it was written at a time when I was, I was the queen of selling. And the Lord just kind of helped me to kind of recognize myself. And it's called Meet Me. Meet me in my bones. Meet me in my flesh. Fill my eyes and ears with you. Thump, thump my hollow chest. Meet me in my breath in the billow of my lungs. Meet me in my veins, those red pulsing strands you strung. Meet me, then rush through me, visiting parts only you knew in me, the day you wittily knitted and fitted skin to sinew in me. Then sent my call before my shout, while you colored my hairs and counted them, sighted my eyes and mounted them, the into me deep and drawn out of me, the quiet weep and core doubt of me belong to you and long for you. And you love all of me, you love all of me, both flight and fall of me, I see it now. You are my life from soul to brow. So please, please meet me in my me, O oh Lord, so I can live. Meet me in my fear, in my insecurity. I'm weary, Lord, of hiding this hopeless side of me. Renew my strength or let me fail. Answer my please or let me wail. I don't care anymore. I'm so tired. I'm not wired to be my own hero. Hero, oh Israel, your God is one. When did I stop inclining? When did I settle for light that stopped shining? How could I abandon our wine and our wafers? Why did I believe going my own way was safer? I'm tired. I'm so tired of trying. Oh no, now I'm crying again. Meet me in my tears. It's been too many years of trying to dry them, asking you why tears? Why now? Not today. Today I wonder why not tears? Why not now? Why not let them tumble all like some great salty waterfall, making their way into your waiting hand? They land in the only place that really matters. Suppose I follow more stumble than tumble to humbling depths to what I have left. To you, just you, I see it now. You hold my what, my want, my why, my how. So please, please meet me in the hidden cracks, the splitting hairs, the sloth, the slack, Meet me there with mixing hands, deft fixing hands, adding secret thises and thats, good feeding hands, strong kneading hands. I need those hands to write where I have messed it up and dressed it up. A pretty lie am I, a pretty tired, broken hero in need of a savior. So wave your hand over these dry bones. Make them live again. Kiss my hardened spirit home and make it give again. Create fat where famine has too long been my feast, the least my meager only offering. Meet me in my me, O oh Lord, so we can live joyfully ever after. Let's pray.
Meet us, Lord, in this space where we're so afraid to simply tell the world who we are. Meet us in this place where we want to hold on to our money, our looks, our position, our house, our image, our children, our whatever it is we're holding on to that we show the world we're good enough. God, meet us and tell us you don't need that because you are mine and you are made in my image. Teach us how to see the crooked finger of God inviting us into belonging, inviting us in to you, inviting us in to make our home with you, even as you make your home inside of us. Make us people who invite you into ourselves and invite others into our lives. Father, I ask that you would bless this church and make it a place of people who tell your story, not who try to sell it. I pray, Lord, that this would become a church that is the leaven that will leaven the entire lump of Salt Lake City. Father, I pray that you would be the image that we want to bear in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.